Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at a-o-l-s-e-n at a-l-t-u-s-m-k-t-g.com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show today. This is Andrew Olson. I'm so glad you're here today. I am thrilled uh, to be sitting down with Katie Lord, who's the Vice President of Nonprofit Development at Proof Positioning. Hey, Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you, Andrew. Thank you. I'm excited for it too. The last time we saw each other, we had some great barbecue in Kansas City. And uh, while, while we don't have that today on the show, we've got some uh, some awesome conversation about the intersection of marketing and fundraising. But before we get into that, uh, take just a few minutes and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about um, what Proof Positioning does. Yeah, well, thank you so much. So I'm Katie Lord. And as you said, I'm Vice President of Nonprofit Development at Proof Positioning. But I have had, um, as many of us in the nonprofit sector, I've had one of those careers that jumps all over. So I've been fortunate to work both in the sector um, at three large national organizations, including Make-A-Wish and American Cancer Society and Leukemia Lymphoma Society, before working on the consulting side with capital campaigns. And then now here at Proof, where we focus on using emotional data to help uncover donors' motivations and people's why for for helping um, organizations kind of understand why people give to you, what makes you different, even if you're in the same um, sector as, as other organizations, what what is truly unique about your organization and how you can tell that story to donors um, to help them really understand um, your differentiation in the market. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm excited to get into this. Let's let's jump right in. Um, you know, we're going to talk about marketing and, and fundraising today. And I think the first thing that let's start off with, you know, just a, a simple question of, you know, what are some of the most effective ways you've seen uh, organizations bring marketing and fundraising together to elevate impact uh, for for a nonprofit. That's a great question. It's actually sometimes a little bit disheartening because sometimes I see in in organizations where the marketing and the, and the fundraisers, I'm like, you should be each other's best friends and right next to each other. And sometimes there seems to just be a little bit of a disconnect between those two departments um, when we're all really trying to row in the same direction. And so, you know, what I think is super important is to sit down with the teams and talk about what what are we trying to accomplish and how can we do that through story. Really, both sides, marketing and fundraising, want to tell stories. We just tell them a little bit differently for the end goals. So marketing is much more about communicating with um, possible donors and current donors about what's going on within the organization and creating that awareness of impact in the community. Whereas fundraising is a little bit different in the fact that we are trying to have individuals 
do something. We're trying to get them to take action, if you will. So the ends, um, the ends are a little bit different, but really the means are the communication and talking to people how they want to be talked to. So I think we've moved away. I hope that we've moved away as a sector from, you know, the golden rule, which is treat your donors how you want to be treated, because really we need to start treating them how they want to be treated. <laughs> and that's where I think marketing and fundraising can come together and sit there and go, you know, how, how can we really deliver the user experience and the donor experience that people are craving using our two different viewpoints, if you will, into a cohesive story? I know that, um, you know, what I've seen is really be effective is just one of those calendars that has absolutely everything on it, soup to nuts, start to finish. So when things are due, when things are really due, I always say that there's two de- there's two <laughs> deadlines. There's the deadline, and then there's you know the true deadline. Um, I think for for me, I always needed to work off of the the false deadline, knowing I was going to be late a day or two. But you know, sitting down and talking about making sure that everyone understands where you are and, and what's going out. I know that I've seen so much frustration when you know there's a marketing piece going out and it doesn't seem to be cohesive with the fundraising message. And so planning that out, having that calendar and really not straying too much from it, if you can at all help it. I know things come up and you need to be reactive, but also work your plan and plan your work. I'm, I'm the biggest proponent of that. And once everyone knows what the true goals are, then it's much easier um, for there not to be surprises, which I know frustrates both sides. <laughs> so, and to be quite honest with you, it frustrates the donors because if they're getting two messages that don't seem cohesive, it becomes noise. And then I ignore all of it, which is the last thing that we want to have happen when we're talking to our donors and our supporters. Yeah, it's fun, funny on on that calendar topic. You know, you you said you know what's the due date and what's the real due date. We we often in our in our business call it the the due date and the drop dead date, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so I totally get that piece. You know, one of the challenges that I've always had, uh, and I like you, I've lived on both sides of the of the table. Um, you know, one of my biggest challenges is in the commercial space marketing's role is to enable sales, right? Yes. So there's not a, there's not a for-profit business in the world that just puts out marketing uh, messages and, and communications and activities to say, we're doing great stuff, right? It's right. all about how do we enable a sale either immediately or downstream. And I, mm-hmm. you know, many people in the nonprofit sector will bristle and say, no, 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 we're not like a commercial organization. It's not about selling things. But when we think about it, like, you know, it, marketing in a nonprofit, I always ask like, okay, to what end, right? So if, right. if marketing isn't fundraising, then what is the goal? Is it just to tell people that you exist and you're doing good work? If that's like lighting money on fire in my mind, right? <laughs> because Agreed. because Agreed. there's there's no goal, right? So mm-hmm. either it has to be our marketing is to enable fundraising, or it's to enable volunteer recruitment, or it's to mm-hmm. enable, um, I, don't, I don't know, uh, in a hospital, let's say, maybe it's to bring patients in the, in the front door, right? Uh, right? But all of those things are a, a revenue activity. They're, they're either bringing, bring a donation, bringing a purchase, uh, or or a volunteer hour, which replaces an expense, right? And I- right. I, I, I feel like oftentimes 
there's a disconnect in organizations where where the the marketing team doesn't necessarily understand that and and the one that drives me just crazy is is when a marketing team doesn't have any revenue accountability i we are yes we're speaking the same language because here's here's one of my favorite things to hear is you know well we're building brand awareness well how do you measure that what does that mean to me brand awareness is how, I mean, impressions or, or, or what, because I see, you know, anywhere between 60, I think it's 60 to 70,000 messages a day. So just because I'm seeing, or there's an impression of a message, that doesn't mean I'm doing anything with it. I'm probably not to be quite honest with you. I have to see it multiple times before I take any sort of action. And so by, by just saying, well, I'm building brand awareness, um, that is an immeasurable, and again, our goal in any sort of marketing is, and fundraising, to be quite honest with you, is to get people to take action. We, we truly need to start thinking more using you know, psychology and behavioral economics and starting to put those into practice. And those can create measurable outcomes of, okay, you know, how many responses did we get? How many dollars did this raise? And um, Fundraising is sales, unpopular opinion, but I'm, I'm going to sit here and say yes. it absolutely is. It is sales because you are in the process. You are, in my opinion, you have a harder sales job than most salespeople because salespeople mostly sell a product service or a tangible. Yeah. Um, you're in the pro you're in the business, if you will, of selling social good of selling a better version of the world we live in, which may not exist right now or outcomes that people haven't seen yet. So you are truly selling an invisible to people. And the best way to do that is through storytelling, is through um, bringing people into um, as much as you can, imagining and experiencing empathy for other people's situations, which again, I think is the hardest job, I, I think is one of the hardest jobs in the world. But with that comes the need to, again, one of my bosses said the, my favorite thing, fundraising isn't all we do, but all we do depends on fundraising. And that is the essence of a nonprofit. If we are not creating opportunities for people to invest in the vision that we're creating, then we don't have a vision and we don't have, um, a, we, we don't have anything that, that is, is worth investing in. So our job is to create that and, and to go out and get people to see and touch and feel what it is that we're trying to do. The best way to do that is again, through sales and marketing. The only way to do that actually is through sales and marketing. If you just walk up to somebody on the street and they give me $5, I think I've got a great idea. Most people aren't gonna do that. Whereas if you can tell the story of what you're trying to achieve, you would be surprised. But that, you know, I, I think sometimes in the nonprofit sector, we um, get into that scarcity mindset and we get into that, well, I'm not just asking for money. I'm asking for, you know, X, Y, and Z. We can, we can come up with many things. So that makes me different than sales. Well, no, it doesn't. And um, again, our, exactly what you said, all of our marketing pieces need to have, there's a reason behind them. Just creating awareness. Yes, stewardship is even, there's a goal behind that. It's retaining someone. It's thanking them. It's making them feel special. But if we don't have goals and, and KPIs or measurable um, accountabilities in the marketing department, just as the same as the fundraising department, then it's so much easier to create that disconnect 
and to look at it much more in a um, siloed perspective than in the true holistic approach that we need to be bringing out to the market. For sure. I mean, I've uh, you've probably seen this too. I, I've seen organizations where you know there's a marketing team, and their goal, to your point, is brand awareness, right? Um, and oftentimes, what what we see is that that results in a lot of marketing and advertising that the marketers like. Yes, or that looks pretty, and that's right. great. I right. love or, things that look pretty. <laughs> or even the use of marketing channels that the marketing team prefers, right? So, you know, uh, so often I hear things like, well, why can't we invest more in, in TikTok? What can we be doing on Snapchat? And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, you could do that. But the bulk of your donors are like 68 years old or older. How many of them you think are hanging out on Snapchat all day, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when the marketer doesn't have accountability for, for revenue, um, it, it leads to decision-making that's not tied to organizational strategic priorities. Um, and, and we get, to your point, we get really pretty creative and we get fun, you know, viral uh, or, or hope to be viral campaigns but they don't necessarily create meaningful revenue increases and mission impact only happens through the, the money. Right. Um, you know, you to, to your earlier your point, like it's, it's not all about the money, but without the money, you can achieve mission. Right. A hundred percent. And and I think that that is, you know, it's shiny object. It's, it's a little bit of shiny object syndrome. And I know I've done it too, where it's like, Oh, but that looks so fun. And I want to do that. We need to, um, really, especially right now. So COVID has almost, in my opinion, wiped the slate clean. Yeah. This is probably one of the truest times in sector that we are going to have a clean slate and be able to really sit back and strategically think about where are we investing our dollars? What do we need to be absolutely great at? And what is it okay to be good at or not do at all? Mm -hmm. It's just as important to say no to a medium as it is to say yes to one. And, you know, what we have been seeing so much just through the work that we do here at Proof is, which I think you and I, I know you and I have talked about is, you know, the direct mail. I don't know that many people that I would say are really good at direct mail, sure. but yet it continues to be in our research, one of the top three things that people want to do. Millennials like direct mail too. It just needs to look a little bit different. Z's like direct mail. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not necessarily, oh, I need to go to where they're hanging out. I, it's, I need to get better with or, what I already know works and maybe tweak that a little bit. Yes, you might not feel that you know that's going to go viral, but it's through a really thought out planned campaign where maybe you do bring in some of those other avenues to support the work that you're doing, but it truly is a back to basics, looking at where your revenue is, where is it coming from and investing in that instead of trying to be all things to all people and do a lot, not very well, instead of doing a couple of things that you know are going to support your donors needs. First of all, that goes back to is it what you want to do the TikTok video or is it what your donors want? And creating that journey for them through mediums that they want. Because again, at the end of the day, it's not about us at all. Yes, yeah, such, such a great point. You it's know, not it's, about us. It's interesting. A colleague of mine was sharing a conversation he'd had with 
the the head of marketing at one of the largest nonprofits on the planet uh, recently, and and she said to him that the biggest gift COVID gave them was that it allowed her to kill stupid ideas faster. Yes, and I, no. I I love that statement and that mindset of like, hey, this is an opportunity for us to go in, you know, with with a scalpel and start to carve out these things that we've done because somebody said we should, or because a board member thought it was a good idea or, you know, any number of reasons. And to just say, nope, like to your point that the slate's been wiped clean, we're going to start over and, and we're not going to have that in the toolkit when we move forward. Right. And we're going really to not valuable. be distracted. We're not, I mean, because all, that's truly what it is, is it, it might be fun and, and it's things, but it is true. It can be true distraction and distraction um, can cause, um, damage to mission, to be quite honest with you. If you start to put your brand on so many things, then I don't know who you are. And then you just become noise again to me. So by spreading yourself too thin, I'm actually less likely to pay attention to you with seeing you across multiple mediums. Whereas if you do a medium that I pay attention to really well, I'm much more inclined to see you. Yeah, for sure. So let's, um, before we get too high on the soapbox here, let's, (laughs) let's move on a little bit. You know, I think oftentimes, at least in my work, uh, you know, the fundraisers that we partner with, they'll talk a lot about donor research. And, and what they mean by that is um, either their, their RFM segmentation strategy of, you know, how do they select people for a campaign uh, based on past giving behavior, or maybe it'll go into, you know, um, wealth, wealth modeling, mm-hmm. and sometimes demographic appends, you know, adding age and income and, and those sort of things, which are definitely valuable. But, uh, but I don't know that they they take that far enough into actual market research and some of the mm-hmm. you know behavioral economic type stuff that you do. Um, talk a little bit about you know why that work is valuable and what the you know how that solves for sort of a missing link in the equation. Yeah, thank you so much. So first, I just I'm going to set the table because there's a lot going around about donor psychology and behavioral economics. And so just a, a quick differentiator is donor psychology is really, you know, how, how are the donors feeling and processing things after they've already taken action, where behavioral economics is what can we use, um, whether that's language, color, what can we, how can we communicate beforehand with our donors in a way that causes them to take action. So what what we really focus on here at Proof and, and what a lot of we're, we're seeing start to really come into the market is the focus on behavioral economics. Not everyone's your donor. And I know sometimes we, we think everyone could be our donor because of, of how great our cause is, but not everyone is your donor. But there's something really, there's a common thread in all of your donors that can be easily discoverable through market research and donor motivations. Now, we do know that past behavior is a great predictor of future behavior, but we don't know why. And it, you know, it does go back to Simon Sinek a little bit, but why do we do things? Why am I drinking the coffee that I am drinking right now? Why did I buy the car that I bought? We like to think that these are rational, logical decisions. But what we found through research is that they're not. 
hundred percent of our decisions are made emotionally. And then we use logic to justify them later. Mm-hmm. So when I sit here and tell you, I bought the car because of the great safety rating, that's not true at all. I bought it because I wanted to look good in it, or it meant some sort of status to me or my neighbor got it. And I really, I really liked it too. I bought it emotionally. Um, so donors give emotionally what obviously we we at proof work for for-profit and nonprofit sectors and obviously the most emotive sector is the nonprofit sector because giving is so tied to emotions but if we don't know why people give then we truly can't live that platinum rule of giving them of treating them how they want to be treated because if we don't know what their true value it what their true values are and how we can meet them then no matter what we're always still living in that golden rule space and people are starting to expect the platinum rule amazon netflix everyone seems yep. to know me yeah. but, you know and yes some of that is based on my behavior but they also send me surveys and things like that and and that's what you know that's what we do so and they know me across channels and they know me across offices do. And if I if I buy Amazon and have it shipped to my house, or if I'm traveling and I have it shipped to my hotel, they mm-hmm. still treat me the same, right? Exactly. Whereas and in the nonprofit yes. space, if I walk into your office or visit your website or call you on the phone or get a piece of mail, I might feel like I've interacted with four different organizations. Yes, exactly. And so, and also... Um, we love to use beautiful language in the nonprofit sector. Mm. And to be quite honest with you, we also love to make up language because we are so sensitive (laughs) to what's going on in the world, but our brains don't work that way. And so sometimes we are making it harder for people to actually give a gift or interact with us because we're slowing down their neural processes and trying to figure out what do they mean by this instead of just saying we serve people that are homeless. Okay. I understand what homeless means, but you know, we might say we we serve people that are home insecure or something like that. Right. That still slows down my brain a little bit. And while it might be a little bit more correct and sensitive, it's also making it harder for our donors to our, our volunteers to interact with us because we're trying to figure out what it is that the organization actually does. People so, give for really basic reasons. It's not always um, because of something that that we think it is within our organizations, like our special secret sauce, most of the time, it's not that. For a food bank, it maybe isn't that that program. It's that you're helping people um, with, with food insecurity or you're helping, you know, it, it's so basic, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that, no, I, um, it, it's, it's one that, um, that gets under my skin, right? Because I understand why people do it. Um, and, I, and I understand the, the logic behind it. But I also remember being hungry as a teenager, right? Yes. And never in my mind when, when we were going through our toughest times as a family, never did we sit there in a, a, you know, dingy motel or on a friend's couch and say, wow, we really feel food insecure today. Yes. Right. Exactly. My, My little brother said, I'm hungry. Right. Right. And, and that's what people that's what motivates action, right? It's super 100%. tangible. People can go, oh, I know what it takes to feed a child. I, yes. I I understand that, you know, for $20, I can provide a meal to a family, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I have no idea what one unit of food insecurity costs to purchase. Like, h- how do I do that, right? Or, or the one that always, you know, gets organizations that don't have clear... Um, 
clear sort of structured fundraising offers, hope, right? What, how do I purchase one unit of hope? And what does one unit of hope mm-hmm. look like when it's delivered to a uh, end recipient, right? So mm-hmm. I, I'm right 100%. there with you. Those, those things are such a challenge because there is, there is a strong desire to, um, you know, to, to not make people feel othered. And I get that. Um, and, and to not, um, demean people based on their situation. But at the same time, if part of solving the situation is getting donors to give. Exactly. We, we have to sort of step, step into that uncomfortable space and, and understand that we have to make it easy for the donor to say yes. What? Yes. And people make decisions. This is not a John Hopkins. People make decisions in 200 milliseconds and they're not going to change their mind after 400 milliseconds. So with anything that you're doing to a donor, if you are confusing them, you've lost them in 200 milliseconds in any way, shape or form, whether that's a picture or the words you use. So it really is that fast. And so saying you're right, saying food insecure and saying hungry, that can be the the difference between having a a person invest and and getting a donation and not because I had to think about it too long. And it's easier for me to be like, okay, I don't understand noise next versus, okay, hunger. I, I know, you know, I I can understand and wrap my head around that. So that's where market research is and behavioral economics is really starting to come more into the sector because there are little things that we can do that make a big impact and also make our donors feel like we know them. And it can't even be automated. It can be through segmentation. It can be through um, message grouping, if you will. But that is truly creating the donor-centric experience of, okay, I feel like they know me. I feel like they understand why I'm involved and we're communicating on that level. I'll just, I'll digress real quick. So I always pick on, and it's tis the season. I always pick on animal shelters this time of year. So I'm a dog person and it's, we're going into kitten season. Every year I get kitten emails. I'm not a cat person. (laughs) Every year, like a little part of my soul dies because that's an easy fix. Have you ever asked me, have you ever just gone back to see if I've given to a cat campaign? These are some simple things that we can do that have huge impacts on just, you know, sorting people because our brains sort people, no matter what, it's an unpopular thing, but we sort people every day. And, um, and that's important when we're trying to, again, create sustainable, lasting relationships with people. Yeah, that's a simple one. So you mentioned, I want to go back, you, you mentioned surveys at one point in, in mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and and I know there's a place for them and, and we know they work and, and add value. But what do we what do you say to the the marketer or the fundraiser, fundraiser that says, yeah, 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 surveys, but donors lie? Well, they do. Um, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they don't. You know, what makes us a little bit different is I can tell you if someone's lying. But yes, people do lie. But they also lie when they're sitting across the table from you too, whether that's on a survey or whether they're sitting across the table from you. It's actually more likely to happen when they're sitting across the table from you because we want to be seen in a positive social light. Mm. People don't lie because they're bad people. They don't lie because they mean to. And sometimes they don't even know that they're maybe lying to you. But they want to be seen. Again, we all have that social acceptance. We're human. We're human creatures. We are. We are truly pack and community animals. So I want to be seen in the absolute best light as possible. And so I can lie on anything. 
And, um, you know, so again, at proof, you know, I can tell you if someone's lying because of how we measure brain activity and speed and certain things, but yeah, people are going to lie, but there's truly no such thing as unbiased in the fact that I, how I see the world in my lived experience is going to bias me no matter what. Mm. So it truly is trying to be able to, you know, sort that out a little bit, but no matter what, there's always going to be um, that, that margin of error, if you will, you can never get to a margin of error of zero because we're humans. And yes, some people are going to lie and, and it, it is a matter of if you can tell or not. Surveys though, I think obviously I'm, I'm biased, biased opinion, we do them, but why they're so important is there's something called um, the endowment effect. So every time that you ask me to do something, whether, and you ask my opinion on something, I am more inclined, I'm more bought in to what you're doing. So if it, even if it's as simple as like, you ask me to like your Facebook page and I do, or you ask my opinion, especially I, it becomes harder and harder for me to disentangle myself from your organization because that will create cognitive dissonance. Well, why am I giving it to you today? And yet tomorrow I'm not because what really changed. There would have to be some sort of catastrophic moment for that to happen because I've been taking steps and growing that relationship for you. And it doesn't just, you know, turn off that quickly. So and let so, me pause right there. I, I got a question for you uh, uh, to go a little deeper. Yes. Um, if that's the case, does that mean that, you know, every time an organization sends out a solicitation, should they start that solicitation with a survey question? Does that add value? You know, it, it can be overused. I okay. mean, I think what I think it is, is it's much more, it's much more interesting afterwards than it would be necessarily before with a solicitation. Okay. Because with the solicitation right then, um, if you ask me a question, you could maybe take me down a rabbit hole that you don't want to. Okay. What you need to do is solicit me and then ask my opinion about that solicitation. How did it go? Oh, Okay. So you need to reinforce that behavior. So I can immediately say, well, you know, I really liked this or I didn't, or I, you know, I didn't like this, but guess what? I'm more inclined to give if I tell you why I didn't like it. And then you do something about it or I feel heard. It's mm. truly that validation of we had this interaction. How did I do? Or what are your thoughts on, or do you feel that you helped with hunger? Um, you know, I, we're not always the biggest fan of MPS here because it's kind of like, that's great. You're 6.7. How do you get to a, you know, seven? Point two. Um, but, NPS for folks is net promoter score, right? Yes, net promoter score. Yes. Um, but there are ways to segment that and, and things now. But that's actually a good thing for donors. That's a good thing for people because it's okay, you're asking my immediate feedback. And I can, and it reinforces that yes, I did have a good experience and I did business, or, or it gives you an opportunity to fix it and fix it immediately, which still is going to show responsiveness and that you, hmm. that you matter and care. I, I love that idea. So, okay, um, that that makes good sense. Let let's um, here's a I want to get us sort of back to the the core marketing and fundraising uh, piece. You know, I often talk about marketing, and I, I think many of us do. And, and and the the view that I have to that is that it's about mass fundraising, right? It's about reaching large numbers of people with a message. Do do you or have you seen uh, examples where, where marketing actually helps move the needle for major gift relationships, for foundation relations, other, other audiences versus just, you know, talking to 25,000 people at once. 
Oh, definitely. And that goes back again to message, message segmentation, excuse me. So, you know, what, what we need to look at is again, your major donors, we have to look at them. They're outliers. Okay. Like they're, they're outliers. Your major donors are always going to be outliers. There always is going to be something special and unique and different about them than the mass, than the masses, if you will. And so you're going to have to be much more nuanced in, in when you're doing it. You know, I, I have seen organizations just do a campaign to their major donors. And what that looked like is, is they knew their major donors knew more about them. So there was a little bit less of an education or, um, you know, throwing around of numbers, if you will. It was much more nuanced, but you can do just targeted campaigns. You know, we call them SEAL Team 6 campaigns where it's like, okay, you're just, you're going to like micro focus on one segment. But by doing that and by doing surveys and understanding what is it about this segment that is unique, because there is something unique about your major donors that is different than your mass campaign, by targeting that, understanding that, and spending some time to research and understand that, you can actually create longer lasting relationships. We have seen it where people have, um, there is actually a place here that um, did a, a very targeted major donor campaign. And yes, it took a little bit more time, but the return was four or five X and what their regular one was, even with the investment of some research, because it was so what this group wanted to hear which was different than what the mass group is. They were more educated, as I said, about the cause. They wanted a deeper story and they wanted to hear more about not just how they were helping Jimmy, but how they were breaking the cycle. Mm -hmm. And so what that one gift, getting upstream much more than you can in some of the mass. And so that's where, you know, yes, you can do that with funders because at the end of the day, guess what? We're all people and people are people. A funder is a person. Yes, they represent an institution, but they still have their own, like I said, biases and things that they're interested in that they're going to push for. And by doing, you know, some behavioral or behavioral economics and emotional research, we can find out what that is. So then again, you can have those better relationships and focus in on what is it about what you do that is super unique to those specific groups so that you're not kind of doing the old spray and pray method. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know that 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 I talk a lot about mistakes that we make in the sector. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've I've written on the topic, I speak on the topic, and and I want to hear your perspective on the topic in this area of, of marketing and and fundraising, and even in, in the research uh, aspect. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see organizations make, and and what do we need to change? Um, so this one, I think you actually wrote about, but I'm just so agree, you know, not stop, not personalizing dear Mm. friends, dear, whatever, you know, those days are over. Personalization is so important. We have the tools to do it. You should be sending me personalized mail pieces or communications where you are celebrating my anniversary of giving you are, you know how much I've given in the past or how many years I've given, and you're starting to celebrate that. We don't celebrate enough in the sector. And people want to be, again, made made to feel special and that you know them. And there's no better way than some of these small pieces that, you know, you can, again, fix and forget. Run the birthday list, run the anniversary list, run the, we've just given over $10,000 cumulative mm-hmm. list. That needs to be done. 
And so many organizations are so worried about the next major donor gift that they're not building their pipeline through some of these personalized experiences that are going to um, grow those individuals. So I think a lack of personalization is a huge one. A lack so, so of- let's let's pause there for a second um, because some of the things that I that I hear often about this, I hear organizations say, "Oh, we want to do that, but we don't trust our data." Right? But but yes. <laughs> but then there's there's no like next clause in that statement of. So we're doing this project to make sure we have it locked down for next year, right? It's just sort of like a, well, that would be nice to do, but we're not going to do it. And we're never going to do it because we don't trust our data. I, I feel like that's a, a huge missed opportunity. And, and I also mm-hmm. think, you know, when, when you say personalization, I think a lot of organizations go, oh, add first name, right? Yes. <laughs> how many times can I put first name? in my newsletter or in my direct mail package. Right. But what you're saying is go like, like using someone's name as table stakes. If you're not doing that, maybe you shouldn't even send something out at this point. Right. Uh, It's really about taking all those other um, pieces of information that we've gleaned either through transactions or behavior on our website or, or responses to newsletters, whatever, and using that information to, to not just, personalize the delivery point and say, this is Katie, but to also yeah. be able to, to tie those other things and to, um, to use that to make it actually feel like I'm talking to you as an individual versus you as a uh, record number 4,719 yes. in a segment, right? 100%. Yes, exactly. And um, those organizations that are really good at that are already leap. I mean, are, are just, so far ahead in our in our donor with our donors relationships and you have to start somewhere so if, if that's if that is truly just first name three times then you know great <laughs> but again then that does that does go on to my second thing is the need for research and the need for data if you have dirty data you're never yeah. going to have clean data until you clean it so and, and, you know it truly is that old garbage in garbage out but there are so many ways that you can get new data. You can clean your data. You should have a data policy that you are you know, running your lists at least once a year, that you are trying to collect as much information as possible. And also um, research. I mean, yes, I know re- things can change. But for example, with our, with our type of research, emotions don't change. Your emotions are pretty much set by the time you're 14. So unless that you experience some sort of trauma, which is a limited number of the population, you're not going to go from being an introvert today to being an extrovert next year. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. So that kind of data actually provides a lot of stability and then layered in with some of that other data, such as wealth screening and things that can be a little bit more volatile that can change based on the market, you know, still knowing what motivates you and then seeing, you know, someone's situation can actually help you have a longer, better relationship, especially with some of your major donors, because you can understand where, where they are still interested, but then maybe trek it out a little bit further um, for a longer type of return, if you will, than just, oh, well, they're, you know, they have three kids in college and that happened. I'm not going to be able to ask them this year. Well, no, that's not the case. You might be able to ask them for a little bit less, but then to go back and ask for more. I think sometimes we're such an immediate gratification um, sector 
that we don't think a little bit further down. And yes, sometimes not getting a dollar today can mean $10 tomorrow. And that time and investment in that data and in that research and that perfect timing is truly going to make all of the difference and also make you actually have a better relationship with that donor. Because again, I can give you 25,000 today, but I could give you 50,000 in two months after we've had a better relationship. It's so interesting, Katie, because I think one of the challenges as you're talking, it sort of hit me. Like if we think about the people that sit around the board table, right? Yes. They, um, they're entrepreneurs, they're investors, a lot of organizations, they're bankers or, or financial planners. And those are people who are used to uh, putting a dollar out in the market and getting a return in 90 days, right? Uh, and, And not necessarily understanding that this is a wholly different exercise and it's not about, you know, for, for as much as we talk about this being a sales process, uh, the, the, the sales cycle, if you will, on a significant gift could be a year. It could be a decade, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so it makes me wonder, like, what do we need to do differently at the board and executive level when we're planning and budgeting to say, like, yeah, baseline budget is X, Right. But, right. but there's, you know, 30% of this might not happen for 18 months or, mm-hmm. you know, this is the baseline, but in the next five years, we think we can get to this. Um, I, I, I just, it, it feels to me like we so frequently are budgeting in a paycheck to paycheck kind of way mm-hmm. versus a capacity building strategy. And, yes. and I, you know, I don't think that's because the people who build the budgets and develop the fundraising campaigns and organizations are stupid. They're not. Um, uh-uh. And it's no. not because they don't work hard. It's the constraint put on them by, uh, by either organizational bylaws and process or by boards or by executives who mm-hmm. don't actually understand the work that we do. We're not going to solve yeah. that, but how do we start to address it? No. Wow. I mean, I a hundred percent agree with you, but exactly like what you said though, um, it, 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 oh, it, oh, I kind of laughed because I said, I sit on a couple of boards too, and I've actually caught myself doing this and I'm like, oh my gosh, wow. You know, I need to check myself a little bit, but it seems that sometimes we put, um, because of the nature of nonprofit, because of what our name says we are nonprofit, it makes us think that we have to spend everything right the minute we get it. And that having a surplus is bad or that, you know, if we're not doing that, then we're we're not maybe fulfilling our mission, which isn't the case at all. In fact, um, you look at for-profits and you look at their balance sheets and they're already planning, you know, four campaigns down four years from now on projections and how things are going to look. So we need to challenge our boards to really do that and say, just because we might have this surplus or we're investing in this now, it's not, not helping the, the mission. In fact, it's ensuring the mission's future. And I think that, that that's something that we all kind of know in the back of our head, but we don't really talk about that much. And we don't focus on having that little bit of surplus and having that investment money. There's some, um, there's some great books about, you know, like kind of lean startup and there's lean impact, which talks about that for the nonprofit sector, and, um, you know, good to great for the social sector, you know, all of those books really, I think, 
should almost maybe be required reading for some of our board members. Because again, we do that in business, but because we say nonprofit and of our sex, our tax status, we think that we can't do that here or that it can be perceived as a negative. Oh, we have all this cash on hand. Yes, but if we're actually doing it to ensure that our mission is is um, down the road, creating a higher impact, that's something that that's a story we can tell, and that's a, that's something people want to get behind too. Is people don't actually want to give. You know what we found in our research is people don't want to give in a scarcity mindset. They don't. Yeah. That actually is a complete turnoff because it's like, okay, you're going to be here tomorrow. And whereas we want to give to organizations that are being cognizant of the changing of the mission that they're trying to serve and the changing climate of things, because things are changing so much. And so I think that you cannot say that too much to your board because, and, and I think you need to just over, over communicate to them about it and maybe even have a, you know, um, a, a committee on your board, if you will. I know that, you know, we committee our boards to death <laughs> sometimes, but really having, you know, kind of that futurist committee or that committee that's not even working this strategic plan, but is thinking about the next strategic plan yeah, and what funny. that will look like and starting to have those conversations of, yes, we've got this strategic plan for three to five years, but we're going to have, you know, the board futurists or the whatever that are going to say, okay, what does this look like? Yes, this is, let's, if all of this, you know, works out, what is, what is that next, what is that next iteration? And just because we're a nonprofit doesn't mean that we can't have a profit, if you will, to secure the work that we're doing and get even better at it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Katie. So we're just about out of time before I let you go. um, You know, the last two years have been insane for a lot of people. Um, I, I've read more articles in the last 10 days on the, you know, the emotional toll that the pandemic has taken on, on the nonprofit sector than I even imagined would be written. Um, what's a word of encouragement you can share with, with folks in the sector for what's coming and, and just to, you know, give people hope. No persist. All I can say is persist. You may feel like you're spinning your wheels, but I, I can guarantee I have seen some of the most creative things come out of this time. I I think we are by far one of yes, I, I understand that you know we are we are in, in a really hard time right now, but we are truly one of the most resilient sectors. We are the third largest in the United States, and we need to really pat ourselves on the back because honestly, without what we have done in the past two years things would be a lot worse. Mm. They would be so much worse than they are now. So it really is kind of like that darkness before the dawn. I truly, truly believe that. And um, we have, we, I, I think nonprofit, we have the hardest jobs, right? Because we give so much of ourselves. We are truly, um, I mean, I'm obviously biased, but not only are we good at what we do, we know what we do better. We are true experts in our field, but we also just have that care and empathy and can create some of the best cultures um, I've ever seen. And so take pride in that. Really, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and just be like, honestly, I, no matter what, I can look at myself every day and say I made a difference because you just showing up literally changed someone's life, someone's day, some animal's day whatever it is that you're doing, just you being there is making somebody else's situation better and possible. So it, again, it it can be super tough, you know, um, try, try to, you know, 
keep muddling through, if you will, because I truly think that we are in a renaissance for the sector because of all of the groundwork and the hard things that we've done. And I only see us continuing to just skyrocket, kind of like the phoenix rising from the ashes, if you will. Um, That is what the nonprofit sector is doing. Love that. Thank you. So Katie, how do people get in touch with you if they want to hear more? Um, Yes, please um, check out. uh, I'm always on LinkedIn. So just Katie Lord. Um, at Proof Positioning. Um, my email is katie.lord at proofpositioning.com. Um, happy to answer any questions, send articles, just say hi. Um, thank you so much, Andrew, for this opportunity. As you can tell, I can get really nerdy and passionate, but I, I just love this sector so much. And I'm just so proud to, to be even a small part of the great work that, that the sector does. No, I thank, thank you for being here. This is a great conversation. I'm looking forward to more of them. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Have you read my Amazon number one best-selling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.